Hello, and welcome back to the Healthy and Happy podcast series. I um, am Dr. Slade, and I'm joined with a special guest today, Crystal Lampett. And um, I'm super excited for our discussion uh, today. Crystal is located in um, in Kansas City and uh, is uh, has a, a background in news and media um, and has transitioned into the field of, of mental health. And um, I think you guys are going to really enjoy her and, and our conversation today. Um, I've already enjoyed the, the, um, getting to know her a little bit. So welcome, Crystal. Yes, thank you. Thanks for having me. It is um, always nice to connect with other practitioners in other parts of the country um, with similar interests. So I can already tell, you know, we, we've got a lot in common talking about attachment and the importance of relationships and working with trauma and how all of these things really influence that capacity to be happy and healthy, right? Yeah. So I'm yeah. excited to be here. Yeah. So tell tell our listeners just a little bit about yourself. Yeah. So I recently just opened uh, my own private practice. I am a therapist, um, like you said, in Kansas City, in the Kansas City Metro. And I did not start here. I was really passionate about documentary filmmaking for a long time. So I started off my career working behind the scenes, telling a lot of the stories of women. Um, And there actually was a bit of a focus on trauma there as well, particularly sexual abuse. Um, so I guess it's, it's, it wasn't a total left turn. Um, I, you know, I always enjoyed interviewing people and getting to know their stories and, um, that's always been a passion of mine. Um, but then I, I transitioned to being in front of the camera, doing news reporting. Um, I also hosted a morning show that was a really fun local, um, lifestyle show. And I really enjoyed it for a long time. Most of my twenties. Um, I kept up with the pace pretty well. And then, <laughs> and then I got old. I know I got tired more like it. Um, and I did, I, I landed in the doctor's office. Um, I was losing my hair. I was diagnosed with alopecia areata, which is where your hair falls out in clumps so bald spots all over my head a little traumatic yeah a little scary to wake up to um and while it you know it's not life-threatening it it was a wake-up call because I worked on tv every morning you know so it was a little bit of a oh well how am I gonna hide this now um and you know people can be judgy so of course I was worried um came later found out I had two other autoimmune illnesses you know knowing that once you have one autoimmune illness, you're prone to get some of the others. Um, so I just started to realize my health was maybe on the line here. Um, I felt okay for the most part. I was functioning, but I didn't feel as healthy as I probably could have been. And especially, you know, this was happening, I don't know, 24, 25. Wow. So I'm like, oh man, I'm too young for this, right? Um, so I I kind of did a deep dive when some of the interventions that I was trying, they helped. Um, but I just felt like there was more going on. And I came to find through other people's amazing research, the link between really physical health and emotional and mental health, um, in particular, the relationship between PTSD or trauma 
and autoimmune illness. And so knowing that I had my own, I had my own shock traumas and my own complex chronological, you know, prolonged traumas, um, chronic traumas, I started to learn more about complex PTSD and PTSD and was kind of blown away by the research there that, oh, maybe this is at least part of why I'm not feeling as healthy as I should. Um, so when I started to work on my mental health and my emotional health and my relationships, it was like magic, <laughs> not literally, but things you know, slowly and surely got better. Yeah. Um, so my physical health has much improved and it really led me to switch gears from television um, to go back to grad school when I turned 30 and uh, just finished and opened my practice. And now I work with other people dealing with, you know, trauma and with other mental health issues. So, you know, I, I think that is such a, such an important topic and, and one that is largely um, either not understood at all or, or misunderstood by, by most of us. And that is the, the link between our, our emotional and relational psychological health and our physical health. Mm -hmm. And, and so often people will spend so much time trying to fix the physical side of things and the physical symptoms without recognizing the contribution that, that emotional health and, and emotions are, are, are having on our physical health. And then, and in particular, you know, trauma um, of all kinds uh, has mm -hmm. such a negative effect on, on our physical health. And so I really, you know, I, I think, mm -hmm. I, I think that's, it's not a thing that a lot of people are, uh, you know, understand well. Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely a burgeoning area of research. Um, and it's, while you can't always just straight up say, Oh, a you know, correlation is not causation. However, we are just seeing more and more and more research in this area that, trauma does impact the way that you feel every day. And it doesn't, and it doesn't have to be PTSD, right? So you do not have to have a, a post-traumatic stress disorder diagnosis to be impacted by the effects of chronic distress and overwhelm on your nervous system. Um, and so what I was experiencing as feeling really emotionally dysregulated, feeling triggered often, feeling um, confused, feeling too sensitive, you know, those were the things that were really presenting in some of my relationships. Um, when I kind of found later that it had a lot more to do with attachment trauma, um, yeah. shock traumas that I had experienced. And that was just really validating for me um, to see that it was there. I mean, it was there in the research. It wasn't just, you know, my mind. Right. You were um, just making it up. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I wish more people knew that so they could feel validated in how the way that they feel while, of course, you always, always want to get that medical treatment and medical attention, and you always want to get a diagnosis where it's appropriate. Um, there's often other things going on that maybe it's worth being curious about, especially if you're feeling kind of off dated every day. Yeah. Um, why don't you define shock trauma and, 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 and attachment trauma? for? Yeah. 
Yeah. So shock trauma is what we think of when we hear PTSD. Um, and I don't love, so Francine Shapiro, um, is she created a method called EMDR for, um, processing trauma. It's something that, uh, I really enjoy practicing and I see it change, change some of my clients' lives. Um, and she very early on kind of distinguished between big T and little T trauma. I try to be mindful of the way that I talk about trauma because I think, you know, I never want to be minimal or invalidating. However, I do think it makes a lot of sense when I say big T, meaning shock trauma. These are things that are usually one-time events or very infrequent, you know, uh, war, earthquake, a sexual assault, um, something that just shocks your system. Yep, exactly. Explosion, right. And then um, the little T trauma, what she calls little T trauma, or what we can think of sometimes as adverse childhood experiences, it's trauma that is chronic and prolonged and often attachment related. So thinking of it in terms of lifespan development, when you're so young, and that brain is so fragile, and so underdeveloped, um, and still in the process of creating all these new neural connections, um, we have to be extra, extra attuned and extra gentle and extra caring with that brain. But if we're not, so let's say, you know, you have some neglect in your family, you get dismissed often, you get minimized often, you can't talk about your feelings. It can be, of course, it can be the big trauma as well that happens in childhood. Um, but it's often, it's the things, I think of little T trauma as being less visible. You know, you might not see the wound. Um, so the big, big T is kind of like the, the stab wound, the little T trauma, it's kind of like death by a thousand paper. Yeah. Cuts. Um, and, and they're both harmful. They're both incredibly harmful for that brain development and for just the way that we feel and the way that we function. Yeah. It's, uh, uh yeah, there's a lot of times the, the attachment trauma and, and little T trauma, um, a lot of people don't validate that. Um, other people yeah. around will invalidate it, but but all too often we we don't validate it in ourselves also. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And I I'd like to swing back around to that in just a second, but I also want to kind of explore a little bit the why why there's there's a relationship between um, trauma and um, and our and our physical health and. Uh, you know, one of the one of the things that's important to understand there, I think, is is that when we when we are emotionally flooded, um, our and we get out of our windows of tolerance is one of the ways that I talk about it. Um, our we are 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 out of our frontal lobes, um, and our <clears throat> our amygdala takes over, and and there are so many processes. In fact, over fourteen hundred processes have been identified that happen. Mm -hmm physiologically when we become emotionally flooded and, and, and in general, so you, so your, your digestive system slows down or, or stops your reproductive system slows down or stops your immune system slows down or stops um, your blood pressure increases as your heart rate increases and, and your vascular system um, narrows and hardens so that blood can be sent to the large muscle groups. Uh, pupils dilate, frontal lobes are taken offline, cortisol is released, adrenaline is released, mm -hmm. all of these things, mm -hmm. capillaries in the lungs constrict so that blood pressure can, can increase. And, and so, but all, essentially all of that is anything that's non-essential for survival mm -hmm. is slowed down and taken offline and anything 
that that is helpful for survival is ramped up. Mm-hmm. And, and that is a stressful state to be in. Yes. You know, the research shows that, that it's, it's actually a really effective state. If you're, you know, if you're facing a bear or, uh, you know, if somebody has pulled a knife on you or, you know, when, when we are in actual danger and need to either fight or flee, but when, when our systems are, are in those elevated um, stress states for extended period of time, it's like, it's like an engine that is revving at five or 6,000 RPMs and it just begins to wear on us and mm-hmm. creates all kinds of, of problems. So that, that, um, Anyway, exactly. thoughts on that? Yeah. And it, oh my goodness. I, yeah. Can I just like record that little piece and just show that to all my clients? You explained <laughs> it so beautifully. Um, okay. Exactly. And, and I use, yeah, I use similar metaphors, you know, it's like an engine, an engine just eventually wearing out and overheating and doing too much. And like you said, while it's really useful for if you're running away from a tiger, yeah, I probably do um, need to use those capabilities. However, living in survival mode, um, that's when it becomes that toxic stress, um, which it, it, we're just not meant to live there. You know, we, we can handle it for short bursts of time. Um, and depending on a number of factors, you know, do you have unresolved trauma? What's the environment you're living in? You know, what's the system you were raised in micro and macro, you know, looking at um, the, the messages you re- received growing up from your family or, Um, your genetics, you know, things that you don't have control over up to what messages have you received culturally? What, how safe does your school feel? Do you have a sense of support in your community? Um, Looking at every individual from a really a whole person systemic perspective makes it make more sense because, you know, even being able to name and understand the physiological responses that are happening, we also have to look at, okay, well, why, you know, why is this chronically getting triggered? And it's often a mixture of both, you know, it's often a mixture of um, environment and also genetics. So it's often a mixture of nature and nurture. Exactly. And so I like to start with when I work with clients, you know, is there, is there something in your life that is like a house on fire, (laughs) you know, because You know, that's, that's important. And if your house is on fire, you don't need four, seven, nine breathing. You don't need mindfulness. We need to put the fire out because right. your system is responding as it should, you know, and exactly. Can we trust? exactly. Your brain is doing its job. It is keeping you alive. It is helping you avoid pain. It is doing exactly what it's designed to do. So if someone is living, for example, in an abusive relationship, in an abusive household, um, if they have systemic issues, which this is a bigger conversation, right? But living in poverty, um, not having what they need to truly feel safe and secure. Um, of course, they're going to be chronically stressed. Of course, they're going to constantly have that response happening inside of their bodies. So I like to start with where is the house that's on fire? Is there something that needs to be done to to put the fire out? And then we kind of move towards as that capacity, as that window of tolerance increases, then we move towards, okay, now that you have some more resources, things feel a tiny bit more stabilized, hopefully, um, working on some of the internal process processes of what needs to happen to help resolve this 
this trauma or to help resolve or support this pattern in shifting. Um, but your brain can't be on fire <laughs> for that to no. happen, right? No, because li- literally when, when we are emotionally flooded, the, the frontal lobes are literally taken mm-hmm. offline. If, if you look at the brain in those moments, blood is literally taken away from our frontal lobes. And our frontal lobes are the part of our brains that separate us from all other animal life, mm-hmm. right? Um, exactly. we, we share, we share our lower brain with reptiles and, mm-hmm. and other animals and, and, and our frontal lobes are where reason and negotiation and mm-hmm. delayed gratification and mm-hmm. impulse control and all of those great things that make us humans. Um, we literally use, lose access to the, to all those capabilities when we are emotionally flooded. Yeah. Yeah. And isn't that wonderful that, you know, it's exactly. like lim- limbic versus logic, you know, it's like, yes. isn't it wonderful that if I'm being chased by a tiger, my limbic system goes, Hey, you don't need to solve a math problem right now. Exactly. <laughs> you need blood flow to go to your major muscle groups, to your heart. So you can get away from this tiger. It's brilliant. Right. It's efficient. Um, and it's so automatic. So sometimes the, the trouble with it is again, of course, if we're living there chronically, that's exhausting. Um, and also when I work with PTSD, for example, sometimes there's a lot of shame that comes with it because we think, oh, well, why didn't I do this? Why didn't I do that instead? So particularly with sexual abuse, you know, why did I freeze? Why didn't I fight? Why didn't I do this? And if you understand that it's actually a brilliant response that your brain has, it is in milliseconds. It's deciding what is the safest bet here to freeze possibly, you know, and if that's the case, um, I like to tell my clients, well, congratulations, your brain made the right choice because you're here, you're sitting in front of me. So that's it, a sign that it's doing it something right. Yeah, it worked. And that's, yeah, the, and I think it's important to know that the amygdala, which is the part of our brain that is responsible to keep us safe, really only has three or four tools at its, at its disposal. The first thing it goes to is fight or flight. Once we get up to the upper edge of our window of tolerance, sometimes referred to as the boiling point, then then our brain's going to fight or flight. And if neither neither of those work, or if we don't have access to either of those, we crash right through the window of tolerance to the other end, to the freezing point, and um, and our brains shut us down and we freeze. There's there's some new research that also says that fawning. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, real, real approval seeking and trying to play pleasing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, is another another tool that the that the amygdala has at its disposal. But but those mm-hmm. fight, flight, or freeze are the only yeah. tools. It's like that's a it. And a, <laughs> yeah, and a crescent yeah. wrench and a yeah. standard screwdriver, and that's yeah. all. That so it yeah. will do one of those three things. So that's yeah, really good. Yeah. Point. Yeah, absolutely. And it, you know, and it's, it's usually doing a brilliant job. We just don't recognize it because we think, you know, freezing, it's like, well, playing a possum, a a possum plays dead and you think, oh, that's exactly what it's supposed to do. And it doesn't judge itself for doing what it needs to do to survive a threat. Um, But like you said, we have this uh, part of our brain that goes, oh, well, what, what was I thinking? I could have done something else. And we have that self-talk that sometimes gets in the way of healing when you understand the the physiology sometimes and just how intelligent our brains really are and how evolved and how creative they've become, um, I think it can take away a lot of that shame. So we can totally. just start understanding like, yeah, this is what I'm doing to keep myself safe. And I'm happy that that exists. Yeah. And, and the real key is we, we want the right part of our brain coping mm-hmm. given what's going on. 
if we are in actual danger, we absolutely want the amygdala to be the part of the brain that's in control. Mm-hmm. However, if we're not in actual danger, then we do not want the amygdala to be the part of our brain doing the coping. And so as, as I work with people, that's one of the things that I, I try to help them to think through and recognize is, you know, wh- which part of my brain do I want to cope with this situation? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. I like to use a kind of a scaling system for that. So if you use a scale of kind of, you know, one to 10 or zero to 10, whatever feels good for you. Um, and for most people, I like to ask them to rate just, you know, how activated are you in this moment? And if we roughly, this might be different for everyone, right? Roughly say anything a six or above, I'm pretty activated. I'm somewhere in my fight, flight, freeze response. My partner looked at me a certain way and it reminds me of, when I was a kid and my dad would disapprove of something and get really mad at me and I'd get really upset because I'd feel judged and alone. So maybe you're at a six. Um, if you're at a five or below, you're probably somewhere in that parasympathetic rest and digest. You know, you know rest and digest is where we want to be. We can connect. We can have a nice conversation. We can share a meal, right? Digestion is online. It's a good right. place to be when you're having a serious conversation with your partner, for example. Um, and so if you can even track, track where you are kind of day to day, moment to moment, um, and use that as a guiding tool for, okay, if I'm at a six or above, and I need to talk to my partner about, I don't know, household chores that we've been having a lot of conflict about. My first job is to try to get back to a five or below through whatever resourcing or self-soothing activity I might need I before that. I bring that up. Otherwise, we're coming in hot with guns blazing. <laughs> and we all already know how that conversation is going to go if you're at a six, a seven or an eight versus if you're at a five, four, three, two, one, and you're in that place of connection where you can use things like I statements, right? Like, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Hey, honey, yeah. I need help with this versus you never take out the trash. Like we just right. know how that's going. <laughs> yeah. And that, yeah, I really like that. That's a good, and, and, and there, again, one of the biggest problems that, that happens when, when people are used to being in, in kind of a, a constant elevated mm-hmm. state is that they, they don't know what's going on inside. Mm-hmm. All of the, all of their senses are devoted to, to looking for danger mm-hmm. out there. And, and so they become very outward focused and, and they don't, they, they become unaware of what level they are, or what's going on internally. And so just, it's, it's a super effective intervention and, and tool to, to take time just to, 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 to begin to notice, oh, this is what it feels like when I'm at a three. Oh, mm-hmm. this is, this is what, this is the way my system feels when I'm at a five. Okay. You know, when I'm starting to feel these things, that means I need to do something to, to, to re-regulate um, and yeah. to get reorganized. And so just, just learning to, to pay attention to those internal signals is, is super powerful. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a skill and it's a practice, right. Depending on where you're at. Um, again, it's, it's more effective sometimes uh, rather than others, but it's even, even the act of doing that, of that reflection, putting words to it, you know, oh, I'm at a seven, I'm feeling really upset. I'm frustrated because so-and-so said this about me at work. Um, even that begins to bring back the logic brain online because you're using your word processing, you're identifying what's happening, you're externalizing it, you're getting out of your head a little bit. Um, and even that sometimes just naming it makes it feel a little bit less heavy and intense. Um, and then you also get a clue. Yeah. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And you kind of move forward with, 
okay, what do I need? Do I need to call a friend? You know, do I need some support? Do I need to take a hot bath? Do I need to go for a jog? You know, um, just getting really in tune with what's happening in your body and what's happening in your nervous system, which sounds easy, but it's, <laughs> it's just, especially if you're not used to it, it or, or it sounds simple, right? But, you know, and especially if your trauma is related to minimizing how you're feeling, you know, and dismissing and ignoring and bypassing, you know, I don't know how many people I work with, and I'm including myself in this, um, who aren't even aware of when they need to use the restroom or or hunger cues, you right. know? Um, and so, I remember feeling that way sometimes just work, work, work and no time. And I mean, I just got so used to bypassing those signals that you can imagine how over time it just, it kind of leads to you downplaying yourself, bypassing absolutely. yourself. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, you, you've been trained in NARM. Yes. Um, let's talk a little bit about that. Yeah. So NARM um, is a newer modality it, it stands for the Neuroaffective Relational Model. So it was created by Lawrence Heller. It came uh, somewhat out of some of the concepts of somatic experiencing, which is another form of therapy. Um, so it uses a lot of the latest research in brain science, neuroscience, also factors in attachment, um, and then of course, affect, right? So mood, how do these things all play into each other and how does how does this affect the way that you feel day to day and the way that you relate to yourself and to others. Um, so it's it's one of my favorite tools. It is complex and layered. Um, and as is trauma, <laughs> as is trauma. Exactly. Um, and I think one of my favorite things about this method is Again, looking at the whole person, right? So we're, we're looking at, yes, what's happening in your brain, also what's happening in your relationships and in your world and in your community um, that has caused you to, to develop what they call um, adaptive survival strategies. So the way that NARM really holds some of our pesky patterns, if you will. Um, so for example, maybe I have perfectionist parts, right? That like to come out when I'm, I don't know, hosting a, a get together, a Friendsgiving or a Christmas party. Um, and I get really angsty about everything being perfect. Um, when really, you know, if I was getting in touch with my highest self, if you will, or my logic self, my adult self, my intention for the night is probably just to connect with my friends, right? And to connect with, with my family. And then, but this perfectionist part, you know, this um, really activated part gets in the way of me being able to do that. Um, Norm would call that in some ways part of a, sometimes an adaptive survival strategy. So how has perfectionism achieving um, even things like addiction, you know, compulsive behaviors, how have these patterns often made sense and served us if we understand the full context, because we don't just like randomly wake up deciding I'm going to be a perfectionist from here on out, or I'm going to get addicted to various substances and just, you know, lose right. all sorts of things. Cause yeah. I feel like it, um, be a great path. You know, <laughs> I feel like I'm just going to do that today. You know, yeah. <laughs> we don't, we don't just wake up one day with these patterns. They're often sneaky, you know, and they're kind of pervasive and they've often started a long time ago, often before we even have that capacity for explicit memory. Um, 
And so perfectionism, if, for example, it's related to, oh, well, when I'm perfect, that's when my parents paid the most attention to me because I got perfect grades and I got lots of praise and my teachers loved me. And this was the thing that got me love, which, of course, my brain is going to love equals survival, right? When you're six, um, it really does. Um, And so thinking of what has caused these patterns to generate and what is holding them in place and, and how are they helpful and how are they at times getting in the way of what you really want for yourselves. So sometimes, you know, we, the way I like to think of it is not so much that we, we want to banish it, you know, even, um, and you might want to some, I know many people who are like, I wish I could just you know, never compulsively shop ever again. And I hate this part of myself. And, you know, I get it, of course, you know, what I like to focus on rather than that is more, how can we increase the intentionality with which we choose to use this strategy or this strategy? So kind of what you were saying earlier about, we want to make sure it's like the right part of the brain that's online. Um, Do I want to go in guns blazing with my partner, like the same energy I would use to run away from a tiger? Maybe not, you know, probably want to use this other part of my brain. So if we can increase the intentionality, the agency, that sense of choice that often helps us feel a lot better because we're applying sort of, oh, okay. So a part of me really wants to compulsively shop to avoid this difficult feeling or this difficult situation, you know, and I could, (laughs) I could, I could probably do that. Um, And as we increase safety, as we increase understanding and curiosity and compassion, and also expand that window of tolerance, often new choices become available. So we might decide, you know, I could compulsively shop, I'm allowed, I can do that. And it might serve me better to do this other thing, or even, you know, like a lower, I like to do damage control, like go to the Dollar Tree, (laughs) you know, (laughs) something else. But, but we've increased the, the, the agency there. And, and that's really what NARM focuses on is can we identify what your adaptive survival strategies are? How are they serving you? How are they not? Um, and how can we increase your capacity to choose, you know, and to bring that agency online? And usually there's many reasons why these patterns have become what they are, right? So that's kind of a case by case basis. Um, but it's a really cool method um, and it, it does it incorporates a lot of the attachment uh, research that we have as well um, because, you know, many of these patterns start with those early attachment relationships. Yeah. yeah. It wouldn't be a healthy and happy podcast if we didn't get to attachment a little bit here. <laughs> right. Of course. Um, yes. You, you talked about a couple of things that I really want to kind of highlight. Mm. And, and one is, um, is the fact that, so 80% of the brain gets wired by age three Mm. and most people have no explicit memory or conscious memory before three or four. If you just take, if you stop and say, okay, what's my first, what's my first memory, my first Mm -hmm. earliest memory for most people, that's somewhere around three or four, which means that 80 and and 90% of the brain is wired by age five. So 80 to 90% of our brains are wired before we have any conscious thought. And one of the one of the real side effects of that is that so many of the things that we just completely take for granted were wired in before we had any say in the matter. They were wired for us. And so many of us don't ever stop to think uh, or, to, or to question them. Huh? Do, do I want to think that? You know, do I do I really do I really want to feel that way? Do I really want to cope that way? And, and we, we just take it as a given because it's literally all we've ever consciously known. 
And so just by understanding that fact um, is empowering to say, okay, well, yeah, maybe I don't want to keep these things. Um, because the cool thing about the brain is while it is very stable, it is also plastic. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and we, we literally have the ability to rewire our brains if we will rewire them. Um, the, I, I guess the good and the bad is that most of us don't. <laughs> um, sure. Yeah. But so, yeah. I, so I think that's a really good point. And I, yeah. and I think another really great point that you, that you mentioned is that just taking a moment be, and the holidays, you know, I think this podcast will probably air before Christmas. Um, if not, you can think about fast, <laughs> but, but it's, a, it's a really, if you can just take a moment before you go into an event and say, okay, what is my intention for this event? Mm-hmm. What a easy question and what a powerful tool to say, oh, well, yeah, I actually threw this party because I really wanted to connect with my family or I really wanted to connect with my friends. Totally different than making sure that every centerpiece is just right or that the gravy is perfect or or, the, or whatever else, right? And so I, I really, really like that. Um, mm-hmm. That's not a tool that I've used or, or thought of, and it's a super powerful one. Yeah, so. I do love that one around the holidays. You know, if we can kind of change how we define the benchmark of what's going to make this successful. What is, what is successful for me? And if we can change the framework from, you know, my perfectionist part might think everything being perfect is what makes this evening successful. Um, the other parts of me, like I said, my adult self, the higher selves or the higher parts of me that, um, are aware of my values that really know what's important to me. Um, they would probably say, you know, that part of me would probably say connection. I want to connect with my friends. I want to catch up with people. So what's going to support me in doing that? Um, and that might be, you know, recruiting some help. It might be saying, Hey, you're in charge of the gravy. <laughs> you know, right. you're the bartender. You're, you know, um, or we're going to, or we're going to have the party someplace else. Or, or we're going, yep. We're going out to eat or yeah. yep, exactly. And, and if we can do that and take a moment, I even like to go for kind of very reasonable expectations, you know, really managing those expectations around like, Hey, if, you know, if I'm working out of perfectionism, for example, and I really want to focus on connection, you know, if, if I notice during this, this one evening that I spend 20 minutes, 30 minutes, not worrying about the gravy, you know, and I spend 20 to 30 minutes having an amazing conversation with this friend that I've really been dying to catch up with for a long time. If I can make that my benchmark for success, it shifts a lot of the pressure that we put on ourselves to do things a certain way. And what that does is it also then reinforces this neural pathway in the brain, right? That says, I don't have to be a perfectionist that says I can absolutely totally tolerate things not being perfect. The world will not explode. I will actually feel better because (laughs) I know, I mean, you'll have to talk to my perfectionist parts about that one. Um, (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Noticing a little discomfort, just naming that. Right. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But if we can start with those baby steps, you know, for people with social anxiety, for example, if I'm working with someone who believes I can't make friends, everyone's always judging me. I can't tolerate this. You know, the benchmark for them might be spending five minutes talking to someone that they don't normally talk to. And if they do that and we call that a win and we call that a success, it kind of helps to reframe 
what makes it a, a good time for you and a successful experience for you. And then we also give the brain the new evidence that it needs to learn, oh, I can tolerate discomfort. I can tolerate imperfection. I actually am a great conversationalist. I talked to that person for 10 minutes. I blew my goal right. out of the water. You know, so if we can just start really small and create baby steps, um, it's both an external and an internal process. You know, we want to learn what's happening internally and we want to practice some skills externally too, where it feels accessible and within your window of tolerance um, and, and to be able to reframe, you know, what, what feels most aligned for me. And then we celebrate that, you know, we celebrate that you spent five minutes doing something out of your comfort zone. Um, and we let the brain know, Hey, you're safe. You're good. You got this. Yeah. Really excellent. And, and, and another really, a couple other really good points I, I want to highlight there. One is the whole parts concept. You know, there's a, there's a theory of human development and, uh, and therapy that's, that's internal family systems theory. Mm -hmm. And, um, and the entire, you know, the, the crux of the model is that there are different parts of us that mm -hmm. just, just like a, a family or any other system functions, there are different parts of us that have different agendas, different priorities, you know, that are vying for different things. And um, what's that? What's that show? Inside Out. Oh, yes. That, I love that movie. It's such yeah. a good one. It's, it's a great, a, it's a great explanation of some of the different parts you might have too. It, it yeah. really is. And, and just recognizing, yeah, there is part of me that really is perfectionistic or there, there's part of me that really wants to, you know, be selfish or there's part of me that really, mm -hmm. you know, is driven by shame or, or whatever, recognizing and naming those parts really empowers the executive part of our brain um, to be able to decide which of those parts is going to get the, the reins, right? Mm -hmm. Which of those parts is going to be in control. And I, and I think that that's, that's really powerful. The other thing that you said too, that I want to highlight is, is the whole, the whole uh, emotional regulation, you know, most of most of what we do as human beings, we do trying to regulate our emotions. Mm -hmm. And we do the things that we think are going to help us feel the ways that we want to feel. And we don't do the things that we think are going to make us feel ways that we don't want to feel. Mm -hmm. And and so and and recognizing that by by doing taking some of these steps steps to set up a situation, we can we can be ahead of the game. And then also just the importance of, of healthy functioning relationships and, and attachment relationships. You know, one of the things that, you know, there, there are mountains of, of uh, research and literature on attachment, attachment theory mm -hmm. at this point. And, and one of the most fascinating things to me about that research is that there is, there is nothing that works more effectively to help us regulate our emotions than a healthy attachment relationship. A healthy secure base mm -hmm. not exercise not distraction not square breathing there is nothing that helps us get reorganized to go from a disorganized state to an emotionally organized state than a secure base when we have somebody that we feel safe going to um and and that we're willing to go to so we've got to be willing to turn when we should be turning and then we've got to have somebody that that consistently shows up by being available and sensitive to us in those attachment moments, it helps us regulate our emotions more effectively than anything else. It absolutely, I cannot speak to that enough. 
Um, especially being in kind of an epidemic of loneliness right now where a lot of us do feel very alone, um, even with, you know, even connected digitally, but really disconnected in a lot of ways. Um, Just the importance of social support. In fact, I mean, uh, yes, the the research on attachment is so, it's pretty clear at this point. Um, And when I was, you know, researching PTSD and just seeing all of the studies coming up about how one of the greatest protective factors from developing PTSD, it's not a medication. It's not, you're just your, your grit and your resilience and your brain. And, you know, it's, it's actually social support. Um, And, and they really researched how people can go through some really significant traumatic experiences but they often will not develop the symptoms of PTSD if they have a strong support yeah. system. Yeah. So that's huge. And just knowing kind of how relationships can really make or break your health too, right? Because the flip side of that is also true. When you have those injuries, those attachment injuries from unhealthy relationships, toxic or abusive relationships, the amount of distrust and, and dysregulation that that causes in the nervous system, because it truly is, you know, we're now we're looking to people for as a survival resource. And now this, this, this relationship that is really pro my survival has also become threatening, you know, working through that. I can't trust anyone. Um, cognition that often comes with trauma is one of the trickiest um, because really people are surviving things they should not have had to go through. Um, and, and that's where sometimes actually I like to really work with um, obviously the modalities that I use EMDR NARM and some of the things I do in therapy, but the therapeutic relationship is huge. We know that the therapeutic alliance is often one of the biggest predicting factors in the success of your treatment is do you feel safe with your therapist? And then I like to encourage people to, um, to create safety with whatever feels resourcing for them. So it might not be a person right off the bat. You know, that's why we have um, therapy dogs. That's why we have equine therapy. Mm -hmm. Um, And I kind of jokingly say, but I'm not really joking. Like, I don't really care if you first find safety and security with a hamster or a tree or a frog or a cat, whatever, start where you are, start where you are and just notice what it feels like to be able to trust another living being. Um, and, and that, even that it's a baby step, right. And we're giving the brain evidence like, Hey, not everything is terrible and scary. And hopefully most people, not everyone, unfortunately, hopefully most people, as they review their life histories, they can land on a teacher, a coach, a role model, even a celebrity, you know, that they really look up to a sports figure um, that they can go, I want to be like that person, or they seem cool. They seem like they would be a really loving, um, attuned person. And so sometimes that's where we're starting and that's okay too. Um, But yeah, it just goes to show how, how resourceful our brains can be because from there we can grow into those healthier relationships as well. And we can, again, rewire the brain, we can develop a secure base. Um, if, if we do the work. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Really, really, really great. Well, Crystal, thank you so much. I have really enjoyed talking to you and I, uh, you know, if you're willing, I might have to have you come back and talk some more. Sure. Been a really fun thing. And I, you know, um, and I'll ask you your closing thoughts here in just a second, but I, I just, um, as we kind of wrap this up would, 
what I would what I would really hope that those of you that are listening get out of this is is hope, um, what recognition and hope. You know, uh, for those of you that, that might be struggling with with some um, autoimmune issues or, or other physical ailments um, and and feel kind of baffled at at what's going on, I would really encourage you to to look at the emotional um, things that have happened in your life and the and the emotional and psychological and relational components that might be contributing to uh, some of your physical symptoms and, and challenges, and then and then just know that the science is really clear that uh, that there's always something that can be done. Um, there are very, very few things that just are, even physically. And uh, and if you if you and Crystal's a great a great example, you know, she she very proactively did something and took some pretty major steps in her life to be to take control over what was going on. and and you're you're a great example of a of a success story, not only personally, but now you're helping other people be able to do that as well. And so I would just, uh, encourage you to, to be courageous and to take steps again start where we are you don't have to go from you know from five to 95 you just start where you are and and take steps and get help and and you can absolutely move your way towards being more healthy and happy yeah absolutely thank you no it's been it's been wonderful chatting and i i, I hope the same that people will walk away with a sense of hope um, and hopefully a sense of self-compassion for just themselves and 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 maybe even a little bit of awe in how how much they've survived already and how much their brain has taken care of themselves already. I think people are surprised when they realize like I've kind of had my back this whole time. You know, yes. I've survived 100 yeah. percent of my bad days thus far. Um, and that's important that. to remember when things are really bad, when things are really, really bad. Um, and, you know, and of course, some people are going to have more resources than others. I always like to include the limitations that we have systemically. That's a larger conversation around who gets access to what. Right. Um, and I do hope that word that you use being proactive, accessing whatever you can. I know for me, before I really started my mental health journey and, and changed careers and made the big leaps, right? I started really small with books, with free research journals, um, with free support groups, with, um, you know, workshops that were, that I could access. And, and honestly, even I think taking away from this conversation, social support, that can be therapeutic. You do not have to go to therapy. You do not have to do any of these things. Um, you know, you can start exactly where you are. And even if it's a role model or, um, something that just makes you feel a little bit more human and a little bit more like yourself connected, exactly. Um, that can be a huge step. So I do hope that, um, you know, we'll continue working through the systemic issues that we have and make some of these methods and some of this information more accessible. Um, and in the meantime, there is a wealth of information out there. And I hope that um, if you feel that it is accessible right now, that you you do look out for possible solutions. Um, I know I like to share on my on my Instagram. I'm not as active as I could be right now, but um, but I do share. You some just got content. married. That's probably part. I did. That was part of that was part of the journey, right? Um, 
but I'd like to share and and there's, oh my God, there's so many. Um, but my Instagram handle, if you would like to. Yes. I was going to, I was going to ask you that. Yes. Any, yep. any, how, do, yep. how do people find you? Yes. So, um, I am, I'm usually active on Instagram. Um, it's at C R Y S T L E L A M P I T T. So at crystal Lampet. um, my website is clwellnesskc.com. I do actually have a book list on my website that I think can be really helpful. Some of the books that I've really enjoyed that supported me a lot and that I recommend to some of my clients. Um, and yeah, I mean, there's, there is a wealth of information out there. So feel free to reach out. Um, if you have questions, I, I do love sharing what I'm learning and I do like to support people however I can. So that's awesome. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate your time. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you.